Hi there, and welcome to episode three of Out of Office. Uh, my name's Johnny Caldor, and this is a podcast where I get to take a walk with interesting people in media and try and find out what makes them tick. Although this is episode three, I actually recorded it second after chatting with Barry McElhenney last summer. And so even though my last episode was locked away in a video conference because we're all on lockdown, uh, this one I did record last year, so we did actually manage to go for a walk. Uh, and my guest uh, for this episode was Sid Nadem, who's a great mate of mine. Um, he's the chairman and founder of Clock, uh, which is, a, amongst other things, a digital agency with very close ties to the media industry. And he and I first met probably back in 2008 now, where Clock um, built the Times Plus proposition for Katie Vanek-Smith, who um, is a, hopefully a future guest on this show. And we've been friends ever since. And he has a fascinating story as to how he built the business, um, his early days, and some of the amazing work he's doing right now. Um, it's definitely worth a listen. Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoy it, and see you at the end of the, uh, the recording. Okay, we're on. We're recording. Cool. Just put this in my pocket. How about um, telling us where we are? Okay, so we are just walking out of the old schoolhouse, which is our, our head office in Kings Langley, which is a beautiful part of the world in Hertfordshire. Um, and we're just going to walk down the canal, um, which is the Grand Union Canal, which goes from right up north um, all the way into central London. Just tell us a bit about how you got into media, where it all started. Well, the early days, I, I did A-levels, but decided I didn't want to go to university. I thought, right, I know what I want to do. I knew I sort of wanted to do something in the creative space, and I was OK at art, but I sort of had a funny old upbringing, which we'll probably touch on later, but <laughs> I got a job as a, an, a, an advertising agency called Conrad Advertising, and I was really excited about that. Uh, I got made redundant two months into that. Oh. Um, then got another job, uh, a company called Doodah, and uh, we did uh, digital artwork and reprographics. It's part of the Graphique group. And I was there for just under two years, and I got made redundant again. Okay. And yeah, so I went to the bank, I thought, right, I'll start my own company. And I went to the bank, and they told me to go away, because our family home had been repossessed, and we had no way of had no way of sort of securing a loan. Yeah. There was a lovely guy, Jez Rodrigo, was my bank manager at the time, and he said, look, Sid, if you could get a Prince's Trust loan, I could probably do a small firm's loan guarantee scheme. I hadn't really heard of the Prince's Trust. I'd sort of known about it through, you know, tea in the park and things like that. Um, I approached them and did a three-day business plan workshop, and then they gave me a £3,000 loan and a £500 grant. But what, what was the business going to do? So I'd seen this thing called the internet. <laughs> I thought that could catch on. And I was going to be doing design stuff, but to be honest, I was, I, I was a mediocre designer at best. And I worked as an account exec uh, for this packaging company. And I used to do stuff with Marks and Spencer and up in Baker Street. Um, we'd go in there every day. Um, but I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. And if I met the younger Sid starting out, I'd be probably saying, as most people did, what the hell are you doing? Because I had no idea about running a business. And, but I didn't have any choices, to be honest. So desperation was a really good motivator. So I started Clock, and I was like, OK, why, what are we going to do? So we started doing some design stuff, 
Um, we've got some work with uh, a large sports centre locally, and then I managed to somehow managed to get a, a deal, a contract with Barclays, doing their corporate intranet, which I had no rights to do, to be honest. There was real Columbus in the new world in those days, though. Yeah, what year was this? So this was 1997, uh, 98. Right. Well, we started doing some uh, comedians' websites, um, and that was our first foray into the media world, and Eddie Izzard was our first sort of big name, and eddieizzard.com was a, a brilliant site for many, many years. I was really proud of what we achieved with that. And on the back of that, we won Bill Bailey, and then Al Murray, League of Gentlemen, and then we did the Badil and Skinner World Cup podcast, and that happened to be sponsored by The Times, which is where we met Hector Arthur, and, and uh, he was sponsored, he said, hey, you guys seem quite good, why don't you come and pitch for some work with us? Yeah. Um, and that's how we got into publishing. <laughs> and it was, I think the first project we worked on was, was probably Culture Plus, I think. And that's when I met you. That, exactly. Which was back in, where are we, 2009 or 8 or something. Let's just go back, because I think the, um, the Times Plus project was really interesting, right? So Katie Vanek, who at that time was marketing director yep. of the Times, and it was pretty much her, her brainchild, brainchild, which yeah. was to get into membership and, and offer more to Times readers. And now, of course, it's all we talk about is membership. So what, what were those early discussions like? Well, it was, well, I think one of the interesting things that happened then, unlike any other time, because there was so much uncertainty around charging for content, and it was one of the only times I've ever seen a corporation like the Times going, we're going to start charging for content about nine months from now, just letting you know, just letting you know, uh, this is our plan, and sort of putting it out there so that other publications were aware that that's what they were doing. The message was pretty simple. It was like, we've always given away free stuff on, on the front of magazines and newspapers. We're going to continue giving away your free stuff, but you can choose it. As a result, we'll know more about you as an individual. We'll be able to advertise to you better. Uh, well, that'll be more valuable to us uh, as well. Um, and hopefully, you'll value the subscription that you have and um, we'll build revenue and, and loyalty on the back of that. And it was a bold, bold move. I think, you know, Rupert Murdoch and his empire, love him or loathe him, he's possibly the only person who could put a ding in the internet like that and actually cause that absolute change because everything before then, everyone saw the internet's free, isn't it? We had to realise, I think, as consumers that someone has to pay for good quality journalism and because it's not printed and delivered, per se, doesn't, need to, doesn't mean that that, uh, that element can be neglected. Thinking back, we would be in titles meetings and probably about the same sort of time as you were having these discussions. Mm. And it was all about scale, right? It was all about the 25 million monthly uniques that we had yeah. that week. And, and, and then the discussion very quickly came on to, yeah, yeah but how, how effectively are you monetizing that audience? And the answer was relatively well in the UK and not at all outside the UK. Um, yeah. And then when Rupert announced the paywall, it was, it was remarkable. In, like across the business, there was a quite a quite a spectrum of yeah. views, and, and a sharp intake of breath, I'd imagine. Well, yeah, and the columnists in particular absolutely hated it because, as far as I was concerned, they were going to go from twenty-five million readers to three, yes. yeah, three readers, not three million, and um, <laughs> and there was a huge amount of consternation. But of course, Wall Street Journal were had a successful subscription business yes. already, so it, it wasn't as 
terrifying, I don't think, as, as people thought. No, and I, didn't know, I think then the nuance of looking at the, so the subscription businesses and what people were actually paying a subscription for, whereas like, and the FT, again, they'd pioneered had a phenomenally successful subscription uh, service. But that's different. And the nuances of why someone will pay for something still baffles me, actually. But I think the thing that Times did really brilliantly was understand that it's actually not about deals and offers so much. It's actually about the events. And I now do over 150 events a year, some that you know, money can't buy or they'll have an author do a reading and stuff, and they have very limited tickets. Uh, some of it just invite only, some of it paid for, um, but all of it with the Times behind it and Times branding. That's actually what generates loyalty and, and, and the tribal uh, feeling of belonging for a for customer. So I'd love to delve into a completely different topic, which is a lot of kind of just genuinely good stuff you do at Clock. Mm-hmm. So Clock is a, I guess we call it a digital agency. Yeah. Um, but you seem to do an awful lot of extracurricular stuff that's good for the world. Yeah, I guess from, because of our Prince's Trust heritage, I've just been convinced that businesses shouldn't just be about making money. That was a very new idea back in the days. I remember we'd started doing you know, flexible working and you know, finish at two on a Friday and all those things. But also we did a lot of charity stuff and work experience and placements and things like that from right from the early days back in the Winter Business Centre when we first set up. And now, actually, that approach is something that is quite uh, refreshing for especially a lot of the young people who are coming through and they want a bit of purpose in their lives. My thing, I've always felt that. And actually, a lot of the things that we've done historically, like our placement programme, I always thought it was really good to give back and I thought it was the right thing to do. Turns out it's really good for business. I remember our first placement was um, Lisa and uh, she came, uh, she was one of my friend's uh, cousins and she was from Bournemouth University and at the end of that placement I was like, yeah, cool, that, was, that went really well. And they said, would you like to do another one next year? I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, and then Rob Arnold was our second placement student who's now our managing director. Um, what does a placement mean to you? Because, I mean, you, listening to this, you could just think you're getting free work from a sure, bunch of sure students. Sure, So it's <laughs> basically it's the third year of their sandwich course, uh, degree course. Yep. And then they go back and do their final year. Um, and then afterwards, we'll often uh, offer a contract and, and take them on uh, post that final year. So it means in their final year, they can, can concentrate on their you know, final year project and concentrate on getting the, uh, the degree they wanted. And I think doing the right thing can often actually work in our favour. And I, I think it's good to do it for just because it's the right thing anyway. Um, but I've been trying to encourage other businesses and uh, especially small businesses who look at that sort of thing going, you can't do that when you're a small company. Um, but you definitely can. And now I think it's 44% of our staff as a result of our placement programme. Wow. Yeah, I think it's, it's an important part of running a, a good holistic business. And what about this esports thing that you're doing on a weekly basis? So Wuwo Media is the, uh, is the company, and Steve Godwin, who's my business partner on that, I was mentoring unofficially through the Prince's Trust for about four or five years. And then eight or nine years ago, he said, would you like to invest in this business I'm uh, starting? It's called Wuwo Media, What's That, What's On? It's a magazine written for young people, by young people. 
and we'd like to launch uh, want to launch that. It's a free, uh, free advertising uh, funded mag, and I said, okay, let, let's see what we can do. So, got involved, and basically we didn't do that well. We didn't really have the commercial sales ad sales team, and it was difficult to start a magazine. Who knew? <laughs> um, but during that time, we realised we were really good at training, and we've given, I think it was 45 young people uh, some work experience over an 18-month period work experience or placement. Of that, 17 of them had gone on to um, have work in the industry, which is great. Some at BBC and some of the other magazines we also placed and had been working with. Uh, 14 then got other jobs and all of the others went uh, back into education. And bearing in mind, these were all young people with long-term unemployed or often family issues. And I was incredibly proud of what we'd achieved there. I think what we realised from that, that's, that actually training was something that was really at our heart. Mm -hmm. And if we could uh, build a training business, that was something we thought we could really deliver on. So we actually worked with the PPA uh, for a while as well. We did um, training on magazines. So we'd work with young people who would then spend time writing magazines. Then they would, would involve with the whole ecosystem of it. So from a training perspective, they would be writing, they'd be doing photography, doing video, because online as well. Uh, then they were doing sales, they were doing presentations. And what age were they? Um, between 16 and 30. We were trying to help with the lack of diversity in the publishing sector. Because one of the challenges for our industry is that you, know, you just tend to get young people who've got parents who are wealthy enough to pay for them to do a year-long internship. Yeah. And that's not always, not always great. And, and so we tried to get those young people who'd come from very diverse backgrounds. I remember one girl, she'd been sleeping in a tent in the woods, came to do some work experience with us. We built some confidence, got her some interviews, and then she was able to get out there and, uh, and start working, which was, which was great. Uh, but yeah, so eSports is, that's just the thing. All the kids want to be part of it. So we do this get into digital skills, but with eSports as a focus. And we do this camp course for the, uh, with the Prince's Trust, so we're a delivery partner for them. So the Prince's Trust do some really good stuff around like get into construction, get into uh, catering and various things. And often we'd have a, we'd do like a taster day and we'd get 30 to 40 young people along and say, oh, we'll tell them what the course is about and hope that 12 to 15 hands will go up and say, yeah, we'd like to do it. Yep. When we did it for eSports, every hand goes up. And then we had to tell 25 of them they couldn't be part of it. And they're like, oh man. So, and what's uh, the business model? Who's paying for this? So we get funding from a number of places. We, we partner with universities and colleges as well. And uh, so sometimes we worked with some of the students who've got uh, some learning difficulties as well. So uh, people with autism and Asperger's are actually often, you know, a lot of the top players, uh, not the top players, are often on the spectrum somewhere because it takes to be a really good esports uh, professional, you need to be fairly focused yeah. on one thing. And that, uh, it's been a lovely, re really rewarding thing for seeing a lot of those young people saying, look, you're really good at this and we're not patronising them at all. They're genuinely just good at something. Yeah. We had a lovely card from one of the mums and she said, thank you so much, you really changed our lives and makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. 
I think that you know that whole thing around neurodiversity is a real real issue um, and we've often written off people who can't present their ideas well or aren't very good at selling it but people on the spectrum are often really terrible at that um, but are absolutely super brilliant at analysis or uh, many other skills that are and, and development and development uh, computer scientists they're actually really really capable yeah and I think a lot of businesses miss out on that um, because they just don't get through the uh, interview stage because they're really introverted they don't they don't really want to be there um, or that's not fair they want to be there but they don't know how to get over themselves to be able to communicate better um, but have got some of the best brains right. and ideas um, that you could ask for. I think instinctively, God, we'd love to do something like that, but yeah. we haven't. Um, we don't have any plan to. Uh, and I guess the question is, how, how the hell do you do it? And how, do, how does even a bigger media company, how can they position themselves to do this sort of stuff better than they do? Um, a lot of people start businesses because they're very good at something. Yeah. They're the go-to person, you know, you're a brilliant CTO and you know, you're the go-to person for a lot of these things. The challenge is, is that I don't know how to build websites and I was a mediocre designer at best, so I can't do what we do. So I'm very lucky, you know, the, um, the E-Myth book, which is pretty uh, much looking at the challenges for scaling businesses, owner-operated businesses as they don't get to spend time working on the business because they're always in it. Then they're going, oh, let me do that. It's quicker if I do it. Yep. And that's, uh, that's a paralysis for a lot of businesses. I don't have that temptation because even if I wanted to, I couldn't. And so I'm fortunate that I managed to get some brilliant people to come and work with me. And so in all the businesses I'm involved with, I've got people who are running them and, and doing most of it. So I'm not really a bottleneck anywhere, but which you... is a way of doing it. And then, but the, then the, even the practicality of delivering the training, for example. I mean, do hmm. you have full-time trainers yes, and, yeah, and yeah. a separate business unit? Yes. Okay, so it doesn't, it doesn't clash at all with what you're trying to do as an agency. It's just Correct. simply co-located. But, it, but it, all of them, all of the businesses have, have some commonality, whether it's involved with sports or esports. Because you do a lot of work with um, sports clubs in particular. Um, as sports clubs become more and more media organisations, to be honest, the sports clubs are just under a lot of threat um, because we like to think of these big organisations and the truth is they're often quite small organisations yeah. and they don't have um, a lot of people are doing five or six jobs and they're really, really stretched. So we're looking to help advise those businesses, go and help them with some of their content and providing them with platforms to be able to go and scale their, their, their businesses. Collude um, is being one of those, which is... Uh, We've just uh, we've just launched. We've been in at Gloucester Rugby Club for the last season, and it's offering a truly frictionless experience to uh, to fans. And it's our conviction that if we can give a truly frictionless experience to fans, then to be able to buy a ticket, buy some merchandise, actually the clubs will be able to generate more revenue. And which is that's basically what Amazon did. And if we can be the platform that integrates a lot of the ticketing companies, EPOS systems, merchandise businesses and food and bev companies, then we're probably in a really good position to uh, leverage the media opportunities with it as well. So we are able to, with that data, know, build a next best action engine, which can say, we know this much about 
this individual, we know what they like to drink, we know like they like to uh, eat, we know where they are, we know what time they turn up, we know the weather's like, we know the score is. With that, using some great AI, we can then build a great next best action engine, which can give them the optimum uh, marketing message uh, or bit of content that's gonna be most relevant to them. And building again, real loyalty around that and maximizing the commercial opportunity because it is, you know, they are media companies and they realize it, but don't always know how to leverage it properly. So I think with the team we brought together, uh, I think it was a really good opportunity to, to make the most out of it. I mean, when we talk about publishing companies building propositions around membership, and I mean, it's all we hear right now is that membership is the key. Um, I guess football clubs and rugby clubs are like the, they're the ultimate yes. membership uh, structure, organisation. And this is, the, this is the amazing thing, actually, when we look at the members there, so look at Gloucester, for instance, the fans in the shed, they're not going anywhere. They are loyal fans, yeah. and, and it's almost part of the shtick of being a fan that things mess up, you've got to have something to moan about. Um, and they're not going anywhere. So weirdly, actually, we're saying, look, don't, don't spend money marketing to them. They don't, you don't need to. They're going to do it. Who are, the, who are the interesting people? Are the ones who've come along once, maybe twice, yeah. but could be convinced to come along again, and then them become loyal. Yeah. And that's actually, those are the people we need to market and spend, spend time time with. Of course, the existing fans, you know, engaging with them, listening to them, providing a forum for them to speak, uh, speak through uh, and responding to them is really important still. But it's, I think it's important for the decisions not to be driven by um, a, a loud minority. Often it's 10 or 12 people who get a be in a bonnet, the, you know, the keyboard warriors. And our recommendation is often to call them out on that and say, look, hang on a minute, you're making these claims. Well, why don't we, let's meet, let's go for a coffee and let's actually talk about it. And it sort of calls their bluff a little bit because when they're behind a keyboard, they're happy to type out, spout out all sorts of things, but actually face to face, you go, oh, actually, I didn't really mean that. And it just calms things down because um, most people are a little bit more easygoing and a bit more predictable. Um, and actually, if we can understand that, we can market really effectively to them and they feel, oh, this is exactly what I needed. Because uh, no one likes being sold to, no. but when it's raining, I get a message saying, here's, here's a Mac, pick it up on your way in, or an umbrella, that's cool. It's, uh, it's fairly simple. Okay, and that's largely around commerce. What, I mean, what um, purpose does the content serve as part so of that mix? I think the, uh, the audio, we've worked on some really good audio feeds as well, so we have... Uh, 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 basically a link to the ref's voice, which is cool. Um, and that's, we managed to stream that live uh, through the upgraded uh, Wi-Fi that they've had in, put in by, by Landways. That's given it, um, that's given us ability to be able to put a number of audio streams into the, into the app. So we're looking at, they've got a podcast that they do through there as well. Paddock Gloucester's been a really, really good one. They brought lots of third parties in and they have a, I think it's number seven in the sports podcast charts actually. It's been really, uh, really well received. Um, but then being able to do during the, during the game as well, do the one-eyed fan uh, broadcast, which is a totally biased view from one of the fans, which we're looking to uh, roll out. We're going to do, hopefully do some interviews and try and auditions for that and see what we can come up with. Um, and then looking at doing some clever uh, video as well, live replays during the game, 
There's a great bit of tech which we've seen, which I, we haven't done a deal with yet, so I won't mention them, but um, being able to stream, they're basically uh, picking up, a bit like a webcam, yeah. it's, it's streaming stuff on the fly. Um, so, and it'll take a feed from the rugby or the, or the football or, the, or whatever um, game it's watching. And then as an administrator, you can be going, yeah, give me the last five seconds, 10 seconds, whatever. It's already encoded. Then go, look, look, at, the, look at the replay. And then you can get that on your phone straight away. Because there's a lot of people who are going, actually, with that sort of, even though they're at the game, being able to go, what was that again? Because yeah. the big <laughs> screen is okay, but if you could control that, yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. Um, but am I paying for that, or is someone sponsoring it? No, so we're looking at sponsorship. Uh, we are looking at potentially for um, uh, uh, subscriptions for premium content. Uh, we are also looking at launching a white label betting, an ethical white label betting as well, which will be, which could probably help fund some of that stuff. What does ethical betting mean? Basically, you have thirty percent uh, to the club and to grassroots, um, but we also put really good controls on how much people can spend. And I, I basically have, you know, I had lots of issues around, around gambling and I used to think it was the, the devil because I, I grew up in a religious cult until I was 21, I think we mentioned. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, oh, gambling's evil. And then I, I tried it once and I thought, ah, betting makes boring stuff quite interesting. And I realized that, you know, when we go to the horse racing, if you go there and you don't put a bet, it's not half as fun. So our ambition is if we can get half the stadium with a two quid bet on who's going to score the next try, I know that fan experience is actually going to increase as well. And who are you doing this? I'm, I'm assuming there's a partner for the betting. Yeah, bet. so we've, we've got some great partners on all of those, all of those areas. And um, the, our partner on that, they, they provide services to 95% of the UK industry. So they're running and managing the entire lot. Um, and, but then we seamlessly integrate them into the app. So hopefully we're going to be launching that um, with a bit of luck for the start of the season. But it's... There are some challenges with it, and it's not easy, um, which is why I think I'm interested in it. I think if you've got a got a really good idea that's easy to implement, is less interesting. I think there's a really good idea that's difficult to implement. That's where I'm, I think that's where gold is, and uh, you know it's it's been really hard work, and it continues to be. But I think that'll be really successful. So, um, you know, getting the right team. Uh, we're just appointing our, our, our new CEO. We just appointed a new uh, non-exec and just raising some investment for that at the moment as well. So, yeah, watch this space. It could be quite a lot of fun. It's exciting times. Mm, it is. Should we get a drink? Yeah, so I'm going to fancy a beer. Right, here we are. Um, so we've got a couple of beers on the way. Um, you gently alluded to something that you and I have spoken about many times before, which is the, um, the cult that you grew up in. Do you want to... Tell yeah. us the story of the cult, but also what it kind of what it means to you now. Yeah, it's quite a thing. Um, tell tell us about the cult. So it was called the Worldwide Church of God. It was based in Pasadena, in, uh, California. It was started in um, Eugene, Oregon, by a guy called Herbert W. Armstrong, who was an advertising guy actually. Um, there you go. There's the media connection. There we go. <laughs> and he was smart, and he made a lot of money um, by taking a good percentage, 10, 20, or 30 percent of people's gross income about a quarter of a million people in it at one point, uh, internationally, and basically they're sort of brainwashing people, really. Um, I think there are a lot of well-intentioned people, and I think that's the, often the nature of a cult. There's, a, there's some bits of truth, and you know, there's community and, and love and people who care for you, and, 
and the trouble is once you get into it then they're going well no you can't have any other friends and there was this us and very much us and them about the world and I always struggled with that because you know people say well they'll go to the lake of fire unfortunately because they don't go to our church I go, but they're really nice people and I really struggled with that for many years and then when I realized it was all out of bollocks when I was 21 and I was born into it so I'd never known any different um, I suddenly went hang on a minute and actually it was a lovely feeling when I realized I was just like everyone else I was just trying to do my best and most who all were bumbling along in the world and actually there wasn't a place of safety or a, a second coming and that probably there's no God um, and actually this is one life and we've got to live it well and be good and be kind and um, and also it gave me a, a view that so whilst now I'm reasonably opinionated on a lot of things actually um, usually I've got a hopefully I've got a reasonable argument to back it up but I'm really easily convinced if someone shows me I'm wrong that's brilliant because it's boring being right and I think Paul Serby, our CTO, he said, you know, there's whatever we're doing right now, Sid, there's probably a better way of doing it. And I thought, oh, it's a really lovely way of living life. And with that previous experience, which, which made me feel that I had to be right and everything was provable and this, was, this is the way, realising that it isn't always, or often it is the way today, and it, but not now of this and this and this and something and things change new technology becomes available new uh, perceptions new possibilities which mean the old way are no longer is no longer applicable it's funny because we you know over the years when you when you talk to people about a certain approach to doing something and, and quite often you'll hear back you know we tried that five years ago didn't work yeah yeah I heard, I, we'd heard this just the other day at a conference <laughs> in um it was in a in, in a kind of forum we were having a, a debate so, so there were about 15 companies there and we were all chatting about the future of mobile and right. publishing and hmm. very specifically one person said yeah we tried that in 2011 wow. and it didn't work and that well, was they it. said that out loud <laughs> 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 and that was their justification for not doing this stuff again and obviously the rest of the room smiled and and i think even the person when they said it they, they kind of realized yeah. what that sounded like but it's remarkable how often people um, hold those positions for, for a very long time. And in a way, I guess technology's helped in that regard because things didn't move that quickly until about 15, 20 years ago. And suddenly now stuff really does move very quickly. Yeah, and, and smartphones, that invention of the, the iPhone. I was watching, watching Steve Jobs launch uh, speech again on that just the other day. And I remember it to this day, it was just, this is gonna change everything. And, and it really has. And you know, with the, the advent of 5G, I think that can make a that's going to make a huge difference, and it's such a so much more so much quicker than anything we've ever had. Mm. That the ability to be able to go, hang on, I can download a, a gigabyte movie in two or three seconds instead of two or three minutes. That's that's huge. And so what can we what can we do with that? And the ability so that the whole games industry has is, is, is really jumped has jumped on this hugely. Yeah. The ability to be able to do stuff from your hand from your handset or have your phone as a screen and then you've got a little controller that you're doing stuff on the on the fly um, at super high speed um, without any juddering and it's 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 opening up so many opportunities yeah real-time VR yeah I guess cloud basically all everything important is happening on the cloud this is just a device rendering the yeah the interactivity yeah no, it's gonna be interesting and I think now you know in the media world often we say well we're content and no we're not if we think like that we're mistaken we're entertainers and we've got to entertain people and engage people and as long as we remember that then the whatever content we're providing that happens to be what we're doing 
but we must remember we're entertainers and engaging at, at the end of the day. And if we keep that focus, which is at the core of all the publications and, and, and media, uh, media businesses, then, then we can be success, successful. And you can see what you know, Netflix and, uh, and, and Amazon are doing with producing their own content. It's, it's taken everyone by surprise and they're doing really well at it. And they're building some and making some really good programs. Yeah. And, and we're all under threat for if we don't, uh, don't react accordingly. Um, I still think there's, there's room for niche though. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about that the internet has done. It's brought bringing to, together really niche groups really niche interest stuff mm. where actually it's perfectly relevant because you know being able to access um people across the other side of the, the world was never really possible before and now it is and it's a it's a real leveler actually one of the things i've loved even with our with esports with the young people we're working with they're often playing with kids in 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 india and they go ah oh, their mom's just called them in for lunch and dinner we're all the same and it's a real connector and, and, and lever of people, which is beautiful to see. Um, and even then things like you know, Fiverr and, and people per hour where you've got people in different countries. So we have um, Nanny, who's in Indonesia, and she's an illustrator and animator. So we call her the Nanimator. <laughs> and she's great, and she does really good work for us. Um, she doesn't often get some of the things we're talking about, so we have to describe it a little bit more for her. But yeah. Uh, if we can give her a good storyboard, she's got brilliant skills. Um, which, again, was his own challenges. Um, I think that was Adam at Swipe Station. He would, he'd used her in, his, in a previous business. Um, I think it was three people per hour or something like that. And, yeah, that's, you know, that, that gig economy, whilst it's problematic for drivers in the UK and taxi drivers and, and, and others, and delivery people especially, who I think are getting really uh, taken advantage of, the ability for us to, for other countries to raise their levels is, is brilliant. Um, you know, the money we pay her to do something is, it's a, it's a small fortune. You know, I think that, that globalization is, uh, does present challenges, but, you know, we need, we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of good fortune in the West. Well, I think there's also practical reasons. I mean, we, you know, we've, we're scaling up in New York at the moment, and mm. frankly, I, I mean, we couldn't afford to have an entire team living and working mm. there, you know. Um, so the ability to be able to have remote workers, particularly for, you know, for those roles where you don't actually have to be physically present, I mean, it's just, it's, it's vital, I think, in, in those sorts of places. Yeah, I think remote working has been a, another real um, cool thing for us. We had a, so Mike Cronley was one of our, he's our, he was actually the uh, cousin of one of our, uh, our finance director. And he said, oh, my cousin's quite good with computers. Could we give him some work experience? This is back 20, almost 20 years ago. And uh, Mike turns up and he's a, he's a genius. And I'm like, wow. Um, and he's still working with us now. Um, and actually he, he was best friends with Paul Serby. And that's how they got to know each other through school. They, were, they used to teach, they were in the first year and they used to teach the A-level students how to do maths and uh, computer science. Um, incredibly, incredibly talented. And Mike had been working with me for about three years, three or four years, and he said, look, I'd really like to learn Spanish. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to have, to have hand my notice in, I'm gonna go and live in Spain. I was like, well, I didn't want to lose him. So, well, why don't you work from Spain? You could do that. He's like, really, that'd be amazing. So he did, and it was supposed to be for six months, and then six months turned into, I think it's been 11 years or something now. Um, anyway, 
a few years into it, he came and came back, and uh, I'd often wax lyrical about how flexible we are, and we've enabled someone to work from Spain, and isn't this brilliant? And then he came and sat with me and Paul, and he was nearly in tears. He said, "I feel really undervalued and unloved." I was like, "What?" I went, "Man, what? This is exactly the opposite of what we thought." Um, what's happened? He said, "Look, I'm just out there, and we have different systems, and and like, I'm really, really sorry. That's not what we intended at all." Let's, let's see if we can do something. And so he actually took a sabbatical, took a year off and went cycling. Um, I said, but please come back and let's set this up properly. So we realized that actually the systems we set up have got to be the same if you're sitting next to each other in the office or in another room or in another country, and that all the systems have to be exactly the same. And we learned that lesson valuably, um, that valuable lesson, and managed then to enable a lot of people to work, work from home so everyone can. So like today he came to the office and no one was there because they're working from home today and I love that flexibility uh, that we're able to enable um, and that gives um, I think it's one of those things that you know people really do value we had a couple of challenges sometimes when someone started working remotely uh, from the off and I, I'm not sure why that is and that hadn't worked out. It's worked out really well when people have been working with us for a year or so and then gone off. It's been really, really good because they've built those friendships yeah, and those exactly. relationships uh, and then they can just be kept up. But I think it's like that in business. You know, it's why we're sitting physically today. We often go to meetings to build relationships. Yeah. You can maintain them over a, over a conference call and, and phone calls and things to a degree, but face-to-face um, -face is still an important part. So, you know, we are, we're quite good at you know, doing events and celebrating stuff so last year we celebrated our 21st birthday and we took uh, the whole team onto one of the Solent forts yeah we just had a great great party and um, we got the ferry over and we did fishing we did um, murder mystery we did some uh, lots of and lots of singing and dancing at the end and uh, they got hot tubs and uh, fire pit on the roof and we sat up all night and talked and drank and drank and had a lot of fun I think it's important to do those things, those, those bonding um, experiences, especially if there's that remote element. The chance to do that public adulation as well. One of our, my favourite ideas was we do our, at our company meeting, we, have, uh, we start it with doing commendations. And so we basically just go around the room and everyone's got to pick one person that they think is worth commending this month. And I did it initially because I wanted, I didn't, in the early days, I think we did our 207th company meeting uh, on, on Wednesday. And initially when I was doing it, I just didn't want it to be just me talking at the team. And I wanted people to, to speak, but you can't do an icebreaker every, every meeting. So what could I do that would get everyone saying something? Um, and I thought that idea, I thought that would work. I didn't realize how powerful that could be. Um, especially when someone's put a bit of thought into it. Yep. And it often gives us a chance to highlight and shine the spotlight on someone for doing something pretty well that, pretty special that month. Um, and sometimes people go, oh, come in someone for giving me a lift home and things, but mostly it's well thought through um, and, and, and heartfelt. And yeah, it's a really good chance for, you know, some of the younger members to get a chance to, to speak and, 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 and be highlighted especially the management team, they can then go, hey, do you know what? You did a great job on that. And you can see the pride welling up in people sometimes. Mm. Going, oh, they, it was noticed. I think especially in our, in our industry, it's less, about, it's less about money. It's actually about stuff they care about and, and recognition and appreciation and feeling valued. Um, 
I think we need to pay good salaries and, and stuff as well. And that's not always easy in our industry. It's often not a high margin business, is it? You know, often in our in, in sort of agency world, we'll often look to for 60% staff cost, 20% OPEX and 20% EBIT. That's our, that's our goal. But if you're doing much more than that, then you're probably underpaying your staff or overcharging your clients, right? So it's really, really tough. And you know, it's very lumpy, our, our business. So we've been working really hard to build annuity income. And I think it's a really important thing for clients to understand, okay, we want to, you want to, you want to bring down the rate? Sure. Let's, if you give me some long-term commitment and monthly retainer, then yeah, we can do that because that gives us security. Um, if we don't, then it's really, really tough. And sometimes they want their cake and eat it. And we've had to be quite firm on that and say, look, I get where you're coming from, but you know, it's, it's got to be a bit of give, bit of give and take. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're nearly at nearly 71%, I believe, is our of our turnover is annuity income now and contracted, which is brilliant. And I know your business is is great in lots of ways because there's lots of subscriptions as well. It's the same sort and of that's thing. And yeah. that's what you want, um, which is why we're starting other products and other businesses, which we can start making money while we're asleep because it's yeah, it's a it's a tough life. And if I just wanted to make money, we'd probably do doing something else. I mean, I think the challenge with the product path and, and the annuity kind of subscription based, based um, revenue is that it only works when you reach scale. I mean yeah. the beauty around the agency stuff is it works from day one. You have one person, you're getting a margin straight away. With the product thing, there's so much fixed cost. So if you look at our, our, you know, our fixed costs are the vast majority of our costs. So the cost of sale is, is, is quite low. Right. Um, so our gross margin looks mm. ridiculously good. Mm. Um, but then there's that, there's that huge, you know, we probably invest about half a million a year in, in product mm. development, yep. uh, at least. Yeah, no, but the cool thing is when, it's just when you start to scale. So right now we're finally getting to that point where we're growing um, at a decent, consistent rate. And then it's like, well, this is, now this looks like a good business, you know. That's, and I guess that's why the SaaS businesses get such good valuations. And, and they tend to be more revenue-based than EBIT-based because it's the revenue that's the driver of the, mm. of the company. Yeah, no, we're, it's an interesting time for us now. Um, but funnily enough, we're also doing more services. So we, we started services heavy. It was always the plan to go kind of 75, 25 in favor of subscription revenue. We spent a huge amount of effort driving down the cost to get onto our platform. You know, So we right. went from 120-day projects to 80-day projects to 50-day projects, and now it takes two days to get onto the platform. Right. And it's just, it's part of the, it's just part of the, um, of the license fee. However, probably about a year ago, we then we added a layer of, I, I guess, what is it we want to do as a business on top of just be a product company, all around having deeper relationships and being more of a, uh, a kind of innovation partner for publishers rather than, oh yeah, they're the guys who do that. They're the guys who do digital editions. No, no, these are the guys who are building the publishing platforms of the future and actually we'll sit down with our, with our customers and, and really think about what, what's, the next, what's the next thing. What can we build together and how can we do that uh, in partnership rather than us just saying, yeah, here you go, this is the spec, this is what we do. Yeah. I think that's part of the fun of doing what, what we do often as well. We, are, we get involved with lots of industries and lots of businesses. And certainly from, you know, from the digital agency perspective, we're involved with esports and, and, and other sports. We're, we're doing uh, stuff with a big car company as well, um, a, a, a dealership. Um, 
involved with comedians, we've been working with in finance, we've done a lot of stuff and in doing that we have to really understand all of their businesses mm -hmm. and the business challenges and, and then use our skills as digital experts to be able to go, okay, well look, this is how we can make technology work for you. Um, but it never gets boring. Okay, so that was that. Um, from next episode onwards, I'm guessing we're going to be back relegated to video conferences um, and glasses of wine sitting at our dining room tables or kitchen tables. I don't have a dining room table. I don't actually have a dining room. But anyway, hopefully we're going to start pushing these things out now every couple of weeks. If you did enjoy it and you're interested in hearing more, please do subscribe to the podcast and like it and share it with somebody. Yes, you can also go to pugpig.com if you're interested in finding out more about what we're doing as a business. Thanks for listening.